So last Sunday night, I met America's, well, I won't say greatest living novelist, but most famous novelist. Last Sunday night, I met Stephen King. Exciting. Mrs. Stephen King, and I hate to refer to her that way, but I didn't get her name. Christy, thank you. <laughs> Told me I was doing a great job. Now, contrary to what you might believe, I was not at an Oscars party last Sunday night. I was in South Florida. I was at the River of Grass congregation, which was the spiritual community that I served as my first church. It was the congregation that I served for seven years. They were my first and I was their first minister. And I was invited back by the Reverend Naomi King, who is Stephen and Christine King's daughter. She is their new called minister at River of Grass. And I went back not for, well, not out of obligation because they invited me back. It was a gift. It was a grace that I would be there. And going back for me, it wasn't, it wasn't closure. I, maybe you've heard me say this before, but I don't like that word at all, closure. Because whatever in our lives that is meaningful is ever closed. Even if it was traumatic, even if it was absolutely wonderful, things don't become closed. Rather, being down there for me was a kind of joy that was complete. It was full. It was whole. It felt right to be there amongst them. And I think it was for this reason, because whether you're a new minister who's helped start a new spiritual community or whether you're a teacher who's helped someone learn and grow, whether you're a parent who's helped new life come along, whatever it is, wherever we are in this life, when we are in relationship with something new and because of our efforts, it is able to grow. What I really felt was this. It's the real hope that comes with all true love, which is that because of who we are, that what we love and who we love will have an abundant life, that they will flourish through the love that we share and have shared so that they can live not just through us and not just because of us, but finally can live even beyond us, not just dependent upon us, but beyond us as well. This is how love is complete. And I love the movie relatively speaking, Jerry Maguire, because it really is this amazing hybrid between sports guy film and chick flick. There are very, very few movies who can occupy that very delicate balance between sports film and chick flick, but Jerry Maguire manages to do it very, very wonderfully. But there's that scene in it in which Zellweger says to Cruz, or maybe Cruz says to Zellweger, you complete me. Now they've known each other, I think, by this point for all about five weeks. So it's a pretty romanticized kind of notion of what love is about. True love, real love, deep love is about more than just saying, you complete me. It is about saying we are completed together in love and in loving. This morning I want to talk about what makes love complete, what makes it whole, so that we are able to give what we love and who we love greater attention, to love with less fear, to love with more intention, to love with more of ourselves, all of ourselves as possible, and give a life worthy of devotion. Now, believing in this kind of love and practicing this kind of love is bigger and deeper than any of our common idols of love. See, as religious liberals, we reject spiritual dogma because it makes a mistake. Dogma is not always, although it often is, hard-hearted or hard-headed or just plain out wrong. The reason we reject dogma as religiously progressive people is that we say it makes this mistake. It mistakes the part for the whole, 
and says, outside of relating to this one part, you cannot relate to the whole. It is too narrow, dogma is. And so we reject the idolatries of mind and of thought that ensnare us in narrow ways of living. But I got to say, beyond that intellectual understanding of dogma, we are called to reject emotional dogma even more because that ensnares our hearts. Idolatrous love sets up our loves to fail because we expect so much from what we make an idol of and ultimately everything in life will disappoint us because, you know, we're all fallible. But the problem is then because we have set up an idol of our own too great expectations, then as a result we give too little of ourselves in love. And so we want to let go of those idolatries. We seek here at Wellsprings, and all true mature spiritual people do, a more expansive, more grounded devotion so that we can learn to love as whole people, as adults, to love as mature people. Now, there's a wedding reading that very often, you know, when you're a Unitarian Universalist minister, it's not like being a Catholic priest where you say, if you want to marry a couple here, look what's in the book, accept it, very often reject it, make little changes perhaps around the margins. When you're a Unitarian Universalist minister and you're doing a wedding ceremony, just about everything is on the table. There's one reading that very often couples come back to very, very often in the materials that I give them and I suggest. It's by Anne Morrow Lindbergh from a book that some of you might know called A Gift from the Sea. And she talks about this process of what mature love requires of us. And it's more than just about marriages and weddings, by the way. And it's certainly much more than just about the wedding day itself. She writes, we can have so little faith in the ebb and flow of life, of love, of relationships. We leap at the flow of the tide and resist in terror its ebb. We are afraid that love might never return. We insist at times on permanency, on duration, when the only continuity possible in life as in love is in growth, is in fluidity, is in freedom. And then she asked the key question, how can one learn to take not just the crest of the wave and love it, but also accept the trough of the wave as well too in its appearing absence? And she finds an answer in nature. This process is easier to understand here on the beach where the breathlessly still ebb tide reveals another life below the level which mortals usually reach. In this crystalline, clear, pure moment of suspense, one has a sudden revelation of the secret kingdom at the bottom of the sea and at the bottom of each of our lives. So beautiful is the still hour of the sea's withdrawal as beautiful as the seas return in the coming to be and in the passing away. What Lindbergh is talking about here is our very human tendency to confuse impermanence with scarcity. So we have to remember that just because something changes and love changes all the time doesn't mean that it's vanquished or that it is vanished. This past week had a great reminder of the value the true spiritual growing value of remembering that everything is impermanent. A reminder to love freely and without attachment, just in my own life, in setting up my own idols. Now, I've got this little book here, Wrestling with Adulthood. Some of you know it. Look at it. It is not a very substantial thing, is it? Four years of effort. Hundred and... God, it's brief. 116 pages. <laughs> And yet, I did spend four years of my life putting it together, inviting other contributors, conceiving and executing, editing it. And so, I do have, you know, some, I think, justifiable pride 
We're going to have a little book signing afterward. If you want to buy one and you can say you knew me when. You'll know me then, probably then too. But there was a cover to the New Yorker magazine this past week that I want to show you. It's really great. I don't know if any of you saw this. It was from about a week and a half ago. And it shows basically cradle to grave of what happens in the life of a book. You have in the upper left-hand corner the writer, hard at work, doing exactly what she loves to do. And then you have it being taken to the publisher. And then the publisher going, thumbs up, good job. And then you have the publisher, and then you have the book being produced. And then you have the book being featured. And then you have the book being read. And then you have the book being put on the curb. And then you have the book being thrown out. And then you have two homeless men warming themselves around the oil can in which the book is being burned for warmth. Impermanence. Impermanence. Just someday when you throw out my book, be gentle. Don't tell me about it. Beyond the humor, and this is wonderfully apt, wonderfully, wonderfully apt, because so many people who read The New Yorker are themselves aspiring writers and very literary. It is a reminder for me of one of my favorite Buddhist sayings, which is that we are entitled to the work, not the reward. We are entitled to the work, not the reward. This is a reminder to love our efforts, what we make, what we set our hands to, who we are, and finally each other, through and because of the impermanence of things. Love, what we love, who we love, is always coming to be and always passing away. Always coming to be and always passing away, just like the waves that Anne Mora Lindbergh was talking about that hit the beach and then recede, hit the beach and then recede, hit the beach and then recede. Things may be permanent, impermanent though, excuse me, but they are not scarce. It's like the Roman philosopher Heraclitus said, no one ever bathes in the same river twice. No one ever bathes in the same river twice. It changes when we put ourselves down into it. It changes form, yes, but still it remains the river. This is why true love is a way of living our lives most fully. It's a way of practicing living so we don't get too bent out of shape when the river inevitably changes shape. It's going to, it is right now changing, even when we are in the midst of it. And so the true and deep love that we are all called to as human beings, it is answered in the yearning to relate to the river itself, to learn to be, as they say, in the flow. To learn to be in the flow, whether the river is fast and rushing or whether it is still and calm. To be in the flow, to be in the river, whether the water is here down our ankles or up even approaching our neck. To be in the flow where the river is, recognizing that the river, that this life is always changing. To be in the flow. And this means learning to embed the things we love in something greater than just what or who we love itself. You can recognize this, I think, in your own lives, thinking about your most successful, loving relationships. In all successful, loving relationships, there is always the presence of one and two, who you are, what, who you love, but a third thing as well, too. There is the presence in all wonderful relationships that binds the lovers together and unites them as one and also at the same time transcends them, unites them binds them together, and also at the same time transcends just their individual lives. It's like the author of The Little Prince wrote, and very often this shows up in wedding readings that I do as well, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, 
said, love does not consist truly in gazing at each other. Love does not consist in gazing at each other, but looking outward in the same direction, having the same orientation to life that lovers share. Now, romantically, speaking of romantic love, couples who stay together, who can make it, as Kathy talked about last week from this pulpit, who can make it for the long haul, they very often, they find what their third is. Now, the third thing to be successful, it must be mutual, and it must be supportive, and it must be life-giving. Think about one of the great couples of all time. Well, at least from a movie perspective, Bonnie and Clyde. (laughs) They found their third thing. Now, unfortunately, it was robbing banks and killing people. Their third thing was an exhaustible source, an exhaustible resource. It was not finally life-giving, and even, indeed, it was quite cruel. What we wish for ourselves in love, we should wish for others as well. Think even more of probably the most well-known love story of all time, Romeo and Juliet. Beautiful tragedy, but also what happens when love becomes idolatrous. When we think that there is no other source of love but the very person that we love, and when they disappear, so do we. This is idolatrous love. It is not life-giving. Now, for many of you who are parents, it is children that are your third thing or amongst your third things. But especially if you have kids who are growing up and about to leave the nest and fly away, you all know that this third thing doesn't last for forever. We all know the story of people who, when their nest goes empty, sometimes so the marriage does as well. The love of parent and children, it lasts as long as you last and as long as they last, but it doesn't stay the same. No one bathes in the same river twice exactly. Third things can be so many things, and you know them. Just think of what you hold in common in your lives with your most important relationships. It can be art, it can be travel, it can be science, it can be poetry. The third thing must be an expression of your shared values, and not just spoken of, and not just thought about, but it has to be enacted. It has to be something you share day in, day out in life. About six months after my first marriage broke up, someone asked me, well, you know, what happened? You all seemed so happy for a few years, and then where to go? And I started to give a really long, convoluted answer that frankly gave away much more information than I wanted to. I said, finally, it came down to this. That even towards the end, when we were truly about to split from each other, we still were okay at doing things for each other, but we stopped entirely doing things with each other. One little prepositional change from for to with, and it makes all the difference. The third thing must be shared actively with and amongst you and those people and those things that you love because then when it is with, it binds the two or the community together and lifts you up into the name of that which is bigger than you and holds you together. Actively shared, enacted, done together, not just thought about, but done together and with, not just for, but that's what makes the third. Now, if this is true in loving relationships and couples and families, it is especially true in spiritual community. 
I think about seven, maybe eight of you sent me a link this past Monday, maybe it was Tuesday, to this gigantic Pew study that was done. Any of you know about this, read about this? About the intense mobility in American spiritual life these days. Once you include movement within the different Protestant denominations, almost 50% of Americans now are a part of a different spiritual community than which they were raised. Think about that. Almost one in two a greater mobility than American religious life has ever seen. What this really talks about, I think, is that there are an array of choices. How many of you, be honest, came into Wellsprings as church shoppers? Church shoppers? Okay, some of you came in as church shoppers. That's how we look. That's how we buy. That's how we purchase. That's how we consume these days. But even more than the vast array of choices, what it really shows is that there is an intense dissatisfaction with religion in American life. And I think it comes from this, that many of you, and I know so many of your stories have revealed to me and talked about with me and with each other over this last year plus we've been together here at Wellsprings, that the community in which you were born just stopped working for you, didn't work for you anymore, very often because of these things, that the community, the congregation, the church, the spirituality didn't stand for anything bigger than itself. It stood for the the maintenance of a building, It stood for its desire to grow itself, but not in the name of anything bigger than itself. Or it stood to protect an institution. Or it stood to protect and maintain a religious tradition. This is community that has become idolatrous. It has become an end in itself and is not worthy of our love any longer. The true blessing of any spiritual community, and this is what we strive for here at Wellsprings, especially in this day when we welcome in new members, is that our purpose is greater than this congregation. Read our DNA, read our values and beliefs, everything in there we did not invent. We put our words to it. We put our actions, our thoughts, our hearts upon it. But as James Luther Adams, the great Unitarian thinker of last century said, there is no such thing as the immaculate conception of an idea. This life that we seek to lead here at Wellsprings together is bigger, more eternal, more ageless than any of us. And that is why we are worthy of growth. Not because we are exciting, although I think we are. Not because we are welcoming of each other, although I think we are. Not because we are loving, although that gets closer to the truth of what a true spiritual community is all about. It is because we are directed at aims and goals that transcend all of just our own individual lives and invite us to keep growing together. That's why the ultimate third thing in any loving relationship is the spiritual life itself. Because in those things, we grow towards the stuff that is inexhaustible, not like Bonnie and Clyde, not towards the resources that diminish themselves over time. We grow towards those things that help us grow. See here, the goal is not the achievement of a thing. It's not the purchase of something. It is the realization of our full character of what it means to be fully alive. That's why we give you the bunnies, but even more, we give you the seeds when we join. Because we want you, like that flower, to grow in abundance, to be fed, to be nurtured, and to become all that you are. More loving, more compassionate, more just, more accepting, more whole. In religious traditions for centuries, for millennia, there have been so many different ways of talking about this reality. Augustine who wrote in his confession. 
He wrote about the death of his friend that he loved so very deeply much. And day after day after day went by and he cried his tears out on the ground and he felt that there was a hole in himself that would never ever be replaced and he wondered if life was still worth living. And he wrote this prayer that I love absolutely and just a fragment of his, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This understanding of resting in a life bigger than ourselves is part of the Buddhist tradition as well. Some of you know the the three jewels vow in which entrance into a Buddhist community comes with taking the vow that one takes refuge in the Buddha, one takes refuge in the Dharma, which is the teaching, and one takes refuge in the Sangha, the community. Resting in a life bigger than just ourselves. This is what it means to be truly, deeply grounded, not to fly away because sometimes our loves will fail us as they do, but to return to this life and love with more honesty, to love with more devotion. Because when we have this kind of expectation of life, when we have this kind of enlarged consciousness, there's a double movement. See, for folks I know who believe, like the pop songs tell us, only in romantic love, it can seem like a betrayal of romantic love to say, how can you not solely be focused on the one that you love? How could you say there is something bigger? There can be nothing bigger. Well, unfortunately, that's how Romeo and Juliet become Romeo and Juliet. There is this kind of double movement that comes with this enlarged consciousness. Because at the same time, we are embedding what we love in a life greater than just that individual life we also become more whole and better equipped to love the things we do because we do not treat what and who we love as the only things that can make us happy. We become with this enlarged consciousness, with this enlarged perspective upon our love, we become better spouses, better friends, better parents, better children because we know, we know that we don't have to have it all. We know that we don't have to do it all. We know that we don't have to be it all. We have to be our part. That is all that is required of us. You have to be your part of the whole. Related to, yes, but not everything all at once. It's what Emerson called the oversoul. What we share in this life. What calls us back together into a relationship. What gives us birth and accepts us home. See, we are just, each of us, one syllable One syllable, one word, one piece of syntax in the overall grammar of life's love. We do not have to speak and we cannot speak the entire language. This is the source of heartache for so many people who have loved and lost. Because we think, and perhaps we've all experienced this, that no other person, no other source, no other reality in life will ever be love again to us. If this is what we believe, then love becomes something scarce. And then our capacity to love dies because our idol of love has failed. What a blessing it is, though, that this is not the way we have to live life. This is finally not who we are. We are comprehensible to each other. We are just one part of the overall grammar of love and of life. And because of this power that resides in each and every one of us, we are able in the first place to love one another. The ultimate expression of our love is gratitude. 
to not say that the people, our children, our spouses, our mates, the members of this community, the people we hold dearest to us are owed us, but rather to receive these things as gifts. When we receive this life as a gift, we then give ourselves back to it as a gift. We are able to love not because one person or one community represents or is everything to us, but because this one person or this child or this friend or this community is a particular and beautiful prism through which the eternal light shines into our lives. This is the light that we see in beautiful configurations when we accept each other as a gift. And this light, it grows in us. This light grows in us and allows us to shine brighter and to be able to love evermore. Amen. May you live in blessing.